2: In this episode, Katie and Ellie are joined by Dana Dennis-Smith and Alma Constance Dennis-Smith. Dana is leading the way in driving innovation in the legal industry. Dana is the CEO of Oblisk Support, the world's largest freelance legal services provider that uses ex-city lawyers to provide quality, flexible and affordable legal support to law firms and in-house teams with a mission to support top lawyers with their personal commitments. In 2014, Dana founded The First 100 Years, a national campaign to celebrate the first 100 years of women in the legal profession in the UK and Ireland. The project continues in The Next 100 Years chapter in the same spirit, to celebrate, inspire and advance the work of women in the profession for future generations. Dana regularly speaks at industry events and contributes to legal articles and publications and has won numerous awards. Supported by The Next 100 Years, Alma Constance is the co-host of the Kids Law podcast that focuses on the laws that affect children as they grow up. Through her podcast, Alma is determined to help educate and inform children about these laws and their potential impact on their lives.
3: So for our first question, uh, would you be able to give us an overview of your career to date? So I
4: started my working life as a journalist uh, very few people um, in today's world know that I actually didn't go straight to uni. Um, most people assume that you, want, you know, move from high school straight into uni, but I um, actually went to become a local reporter out of high school. I don't think it was very well received at home because they very much expected me to go straight to uni. So, um, But I kind of just woke up in the morning and said that I wanted to be a reporter and um, uh, become a journalist. So they did support me in that. And uh, so I went into journalism and then I became a mature student um, at the LSC, and um, it never occurred to me to be a lawyer, basically. <laughs> so I ended up um, in law having met my future husband, who was studying to be a barrister. And I thought it was the most interesting crowd of people. Very competitive, obviously, you know how it is. And um, but very curious, you know, very well educated, very well read. It was really a good crowd. And um, I one day decided that I will try to become a city solicitor. So that's what I went, uh, went and did. I studied part-time. So I was a journalist by day and a law student by night and uh, ended up training at Lingleders and um, qualifying in employment law, which I really enjoyed because it's all about people and I love people. And then I just wasn't quite sure about um, the environment they had built for the people. <laughs> so I didn't stay very long. And I then ended up being a journalist. Uh, no, you can edit that. I ended exactly. up going back. <laughs> well, I, I was a kind of journalism because being an entrepreneur is very, very freeing, right? So I became a an entrepreneur. I went into business and uh, applied what I learned throughout my life, maybe. Um and decided to run a legal company called Obelisk Support just as the um, legal services market was opening up and allowing different types of organizations to come in and uh, that's what I still do today. Amazing.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. We we kind of always come on our podcast that it's very rare that we have a guest that just, just does the law undergrad and then starts a law profession. Everyone seems to sort of come from from different previous careers or different sort yeah, of studies. Yeah, I think
2: across the two series we've done, there's only been one guest that, that knew they wanted to go into law and did that straight away. So that's super interesting. And then obviously, you're currently CEO of Oblis, the support, still doing that. Um, can you just explain a little bit more about what it is and how you even came about founding your own company?
4: yeah so I started my first business um after leaving um practice basically was completely different to the legal industry, although it was serving the legal profession, it was basically in compliance and know your customer and that kind of work, and kind of almost like you know the department of conflict checks in the in the um law firms, and it was all around looking for um people that were looking to invest in emerging markets, which were quite difficult to understand. The languages are quite complicated. And um, I decided to set up a business to kind of demystify these markets to those who were interested. And because I love writing, I understood the kind of legal risk aspects. So if I bring them together, I'll create this business. And so that business relied um, on about 70 A network of about 70 professionals that were on the ground in these various markets, you know, from Russia to Turkmenistan and Mongolia and you name it. And actually, that's where I kind of first came up with the idea of using freelancers to create a product or a service. And so, you know, supports came to me because I realized clients had basically uh, an increasing volume of work. They had an increasing pressure on bringing down the cost of doing the work. There were a lot of issues around hiring more people and they wanted more flexibility both from a cost point of view and delivery point of view, um, but also they didn't really want to compromise on quality. And so I came up with this idea of creating a business around um, primarily moms who were dropping out from the big firms and wanted more flexibility to basically design jobs that were good for them but also were delivering all this affordability and flexibility to the clients. And I thought this could be a good match and is one way of delivering legal work that works not just for the client end but also for the people. (laughs) Because obviously, as I said, you know, as the person in those firms, I didn't feel terribly happy, right? It was quite an intense space. So if you want to step away from that kind of intense day-to-day 24-7, there weren't any options, really. Um, and I noticed a lot of moms were purely dropping out. So there was no kind of in between. It was either you're 150% in or you are, who are you? Well, you used to be somebody, but we don't want you anymore. And so I wanted to bring them back and say, well, what can you do? What do you want to do? How much time do you have? When do you prefer to work? And looking at them in the round, I thought, well, they're amazing. You know, great qualities, great training why don't we build a solution around what you can give, but we package it so that the clients also get what they need. And um, that's basically how Obelisk Sport was born, this idea of outsourcing in a different way with um, a respect for people's lives and recognizing they need the balance, but also that it's no zero sum. You know, Once you want something in a particular setup today, it doesn't mean that you can't be a partner tomorrow. And so for me, it was also about reintegrating them giving them the courage to return, but also to believe almost that they can return to be top in their profession if they want when they're ready. But they needed to keep that kind of steady pace and their hand into the legal work uh, with other kind of headaches of, you know, I need to print lots of pages or how am I going to do the Bible? Or, you know, I, I just don't have the infrastructure. I just said, focus on your skills, your technical ability, the time you have and leave all the admin to me And also leave finding clients to me because I know that's kind of something that happens at 8 a.m. for breakfast or late at night for a reception. And if you have a small family and everything, then you don't want to be out at, or you can't actually be out every night um, networking with um, potential clients. So I kind of want to take the headache away, focus on their skills and allow them to keep working at their pace but also provide something for, for, for the clients because they also had a challenge and I felt it was a good match for what everybody needed. Um, so that's kind of basically the beginning and actually it's still the same today.
3: Amazing. Yeah, thank you very much. It's it's really interesting because we we have heard um, sort of three different episodes a lot about the difficulties of kind of maintaining a law career, particularly kind of with the hours and the demand, but actually kind of hearing... Um, a solution that's also become kind of through an entrepreneur um, channel. Is, it's really, really interesting how you actually can solve these problems They're <laughs> not just a, uh, that, you know, they shouldn't be a complete barrier to the legal profession. And it's so interesting as well because I, I feel like,
2: I think it, you founded this in 2010. Yeah, that is right. And now with COVID, flexible working, I would say, has, you know, increased, it has got better. But back then, I mean... It really wasn't like you fully
3: pioneered that which is so cool um yeah. yeah amazing thank you and um as you can tell we've sort of researched um all the sort of different aspects you're involved in so um for the next question we wanted to ask what motivated you to start the first 100 years project and then its sister project the next 100 years i think to be honest just being close to women-in-law with
4: my business i picked up there was a very negative narrative around being a woman in law Mm -hmm. and to be honest I wasn't practicing at that point but um I think that's what helped me because I could step back and say I didn't really have any direct stake I wasn't fighting to be a partner I wasn't fighting for anything I was just trying to build a business actually with a small child next to me as well Mm -hmm. and I thought why is everything that I'm hearing so negative why is this exciting you know World of law that obviously attracted me, you know, all these intelligent people and everything. Why is it so kind of um, ridden by negativity and by actually lack of solutions, right? And um, so I kind of had that at the back of my mind because I met so many moms, and they were always saying, "Oh, nobody wants me." You know, what's the point of training? Or you know, I wasn't allowed to wear trousers. I, you know, couldn't. I had to hide my children's photos. So there was a lot of background to kind of how women felt. They weren't really accepted in the world of law. So I think at the back of my mind, I was looking for solutions. I just didn't have the solution um, outside of the kind of narrow proposition I put around my business. And then um, literally accidentally, I think it was November 2013, my husband basically is a barrister, but he also had one year as a um, lawyer at Herbert Smith. And uh, it, he was getting the alumni magazine. It used to be coming in hard copy. So it arrives for the post. And I always, even before I decided to be um in the legal profession, I always read all of these things he used to bring, you know, like the, the uh, magazine from his in and whatever. So I was, you know, the little side figures that you name it, I always read every publication, basically, probably because I was a journalist and I love publications. And uh, So I opened this one and I was like, oh, interesting. And then suddenly I opened this double spread. And the story was about a guy who turned 100 and he used to be a partner. And I thought, well, interesting. And then in the corner, they had this photograph, which was all centered on the guy. I mean, the guy was the focus of the story. But to me, the photograph was just astonishing because it was just the group of guys of which he was one. And there was one woman in the middle. And I thought, wow, this phone had one woman partner and it's 1982. And I thought, boy, I was already alive. How can it be? You know, what is this telling us? I suddenly had this light bulb moment. I thought, well, if there was one woman in 1982, what's the story here? Because maybe this will unlock a lot of, you know, the kind of struggle. Maybe I can learn something from looking at the history. And I had no idea. And I'm sure you. Probably, Maybe you probably had a, I'd like to think, slightly better kind of um, education around women in law and their history. But when I went to my evening classes, um, there was nothing about women. And actually, if you go on the city law track, everything you do, business law, you know, contracts, whatever, every case that was cited was some kind of guy, Lord something or other. There was never a lady. And um, I thought, wow, you know, What's the story? And then when I looked in the history, I discovered that women weren't persons, and they got, you know got rejected. There was this case law, there were all these challenges around the law society to try to open the profession to women. Well, and suddenly to me, the answer was in history. To be honest, and I thought if we don't understand this kind of timeline that we are part of, we will constantly reinvent the wheel. And that creates a sense of not belonging because you always think you are the pioneering, pioneering generation when in fact you are no longer. And I think when you're not the pioneering generation, you build on that legacy, you are you have a foundation. So in my mind, um, I discovered two things. First was, this was about March, 2014, when I started to kind of bring together the timeline, the history and, um, got the partnership with the Law Society and the Bar Council, I simply said, will you be involved? Because I think it's really important. So I discovered that we had five years to the 100 years of the Sex Disqualification Removal Act. And I thought that five years, we can make good use of it. We can be focused. We can have a if you like a delivery in mind. You know, we want to achieve something over this time span. Um, and then it, it's not putting me under too much pressure because as you can imagine by this point, uh, probably my child was about three And my business was starting to kind of, you know, take off because I could dedicate more time to it. So I thought, well, it needs to be balanced here. And, um, so basically I started the first hundred years to say what, you know, to do what he says on the tin, as they say, you know, to basically chart the history of women in law from 1919, 400 years, and really get under the bonnet of why do we feel we can disconnect so easily? But also to create the foundation for the next generation. I thought it's really important to say to people, you're not the first. And even if you are the first, you can create, you're creating a layer here on which we can build. So let's talk about it, you know. Um and then the more I got into the history and the kind of if you like the present, the more I discovered most of the first were today <laughs> and well, or in the last kind of, you know, 10 years, and that we we're also in danger of leaving no trace for the future de- generation. If we didn't record the films and their lives, we would also kind of just skate over it, you know. And I don't really like to do um, superficial interventions to things. Um, and I then decided we really have to go quite big on this. You know, it really has to be a really big campaign. The profession needs to be engaged somehow to understand how important it is that we pass on quality information around how much women have achieved in order for the next generation to feel they belong that something changes fundamentally and structurally, not just on the surface. And so that was basically the first hundred years just became, you know, it started with a kind of a history project kind of project and it became very clear it had to be a national campaign that almost Took its own life and became uh, an umbrella, like a festival of celebration, really for women, where firms could come up with their own creativity, um, create their own parties, their own celebrations, but also all, un- you know, under this kind of umbrella of the first hundred years. What have we learned? Where are we today? How do we build for the future? And it took lots of different um, shapes. I mean, I was very keen, probably because I'm a journalist, to make it very story-led. And again, that was quite new because lawyers like lots of words and kind of in heavy text and kind of preferably in like font eight and with lots of footnotes. And um, I thought we mustn't speak this way because it's so uninspiring and let's put the people first. Let's tell the story first, but let's make them tell the whole story. And that's where I think journalism really helped because when we went to Lady Hale, we didn't let her get away. We were not talking about her child or how it was to be a mother or, you know, how she's thought her career through this kind of lens of, yes, I want to achieve professionally, but actually I do have a child. You know, she did divorce it the and then remarried or whatever. So there's a whole life story going on there. And I thought, well, how did you... They're not separate, you know, we need to bring them together. And luckily, I think, um, because we had had many more senior women, they started to open up and they understood you don't become a role model without being relatable. You've got to say it the way, you know, in an authentic way. And the minute they started to be open, obviously other people started to be more open and telling their story and... um it made a huge difference to how the project then evolved and became much more, I guess, relatable because the stories were more real. And they weren't just about, I you know, did this massive case and I'm you know, the biggest brain in the league world. Yeah, that's fine. But actually, who are you? What's the human behind the story? And what is the life journey as well, which I think is quite important because there's this assumption, especially if you get... You know, somebody said, you know, do you have to be a baroness to be part of this film, you know, library? And I said, well, most of them did not start baroness, let me tell you. In fact, none of them did. They became because they achieved from very different starts in life. And so being able to say to them, you know what, look at the diversity of routes that people have taken to get to the very top. You see the end, but actually you've got to look from the beginning. And um then you know it became much more of a diversity also in different ways, not just because they were women, or we had, you know, um, you know, different sexual orientation, women or whatever. The point is that we had different routes to how they achieved. And I think to me that's inspirational for men and women, not just for women. Um, because everybody wants to achieve something in the legal profession and ask themselves, you know, what is the decision I need to take at this particular crossroad? Um and if somebody talks about, well, you know, they've had these moments, you know, Lady Hair could have said, I will stay in practice rather than I'll go into academia. Or, you know, why did she want to be a law commissioner rather than become going back to practice, you know? So all these decisions are important because that's how she became what she became. And I think that's really important for younger generations coming in to say it's not straightforward. It does require taking decisions, the critical moments in your career. They are not forever you can recover, but you need to understand that these moments happened to everybody else before. Um, they have, none of them succeeded by accident, really. They might have ended up in law by accident, but once they were in there, they were open, they were experimental, they gave it all, they were different routes, but certainly they were not giving up.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. That was a, so cool, isn't it? Yeah, a great explanation. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose, obviously, we can only agree. I think particularly um, kind of like the idea that when people think of lawyers or when you're taught about lawyers when you're younger, you just picture this kind of well, quite often like a man in a suit and like his whole personality or the whole thing that makes him is just being a lawyer. Um, but yeah, this idea that uh, particularly, I suppose, looking at to from a woman's point of view, you know they have family often and they have all these other aspects that contributed to also like how their legal profession developed and it's a yeah an incredibly I think important viewpoint for people to understand and and have access to yeah and I mean it's still
2: something that I think needs work in terms of like I still sometimes think when you become a lawyer like people think that that's all that you are like and it's like no you might want to be a lawyer but you also have so many other random interests ellie and i have been trying like pole fitness and things like that which you wouldn't expect of a stereotypical like lawyer and like boxing and things like that and it's just so much more than just your career and speaking sort of looking towards the next 100 years do you think that the legal industry is currently doing enough to support women is it getting better
4: have you seen progress over your legal career This is always a difficult question, to be honest, because when we started the next hundred years, I obviously stopped between the first and next to ask myself, is this needed? Mm -hmm. Because it's a lot of work. I mean, when I counted the amount of time I've spent, and it's all my voluntary time, you know, I probably spent over 10,000 hours building the first hundred years, creating all the multimedia we created. Not by doing it myself, a coordinating, making it happen, fundraising, you know, over half a minute. And it was a lot of work that I put in my own time. I mean, I never had the weekend, really. Um, and I loved it, but I had to ask myself, has it not changed for us to be needed?
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And then as I asked myself the question, I realized um, there's still myths that survive around obstacles that are no longer there. I owe it to your generation to tell you that's a war not fight, not worth fighting because it doesn't exist. We often, I think, generations, especially before maybe mine, passed on their baggage and their lack of fulfillment to the next generation. I think that's very dangerous. So, you know, my mother's obstacles should not become your obstacles if actually they're no longer there. And we need to dismantle some of these things. And I think it's really important to empower women to feel where they can achieve Mm -hmm. and also to recognize some of the options. So we decided that we will continue, but in a more targeted way. So continuing to create role models, because I think, again, that is something that is story-led and um, creates visibility. And there is still a lack of spread of visibility around women. So that's why we're continuing with the filming and um, slightly different format. We're focusing on the women leaders because that is a massive challenge at the very top. Women just don't stay to progress. Um, and so giving that kind of platform around women leaders, visibility to women leaders of today to talk in the round about their careers and how they arrived to be where they are, I thought it was really important um, and needed to continue there is more discussion now. There is much more noise around, and that's great. But I feel we're building on that kind of role model legacy. You know, you are building on the historic timeline. It's not the same to say, well, I'm a role To say yes. But, you know, you're also shaped by what's happened before. And I feel placing people in that history is really important to reinforce the foundation. And then there are very significant changes that are really stubborn. You know, the pay gap is real. The pay gap gets worse the higher up you go, which is in itself wrong. <laughs> you know, the worst pay gap is the CEO level. Women CEOs get like ripped off basically. And that translates. The legal tech world, again, you know, wherever men migrate because they see the risk is high, but also the reward is high, you don't see women. So this is of absence of women in, in all the areas of new law, for example, which are actually taking off now. Legal tech remains, you know, a desert for women, really. Um, So I thought it's really important to look and be more targeted around actually these areas of the future, and we need the women to start entering and really be aware and champion things around, yeah, we need to look into partnership. Why is it so complicated to explain what it takes? Why are women not succeeding in the same numbers? Because it's one thing to be, to be honest, a salaried partner. She's basically just a higher Paid, you know, associated with a bit of risk attached. But equity partner, where you throw your hat in the ring properly and you can make decisions and influence outcomes, women still make a very low number, it's below the 20% mark. So, what are we telling women to aspire to? You know, a slight improvement or fundamental improvement? And I think I always said from the very beginning, I think I said it in 2015, the future of law is female. We do have, I think, the opportunity to reshape the legal profession to work for women. And you mentioned flexible work. Yes, it's not really about flexible work. I don't think the change we've seen because of COVID is about allowing and being more tolerant of remote working. But flexibility in the job doesn't exist really. It's still frowned upon. They're still conflated as concepts, but they're very different things. It's one thing to say, i like to start at 10 and finish at 4 three days a week and then the full days, so that requires a flexibility of mind from the employer. Another thing to say, one day i like to work from home. They're very different things. Um, and educating around true flexibility, which is what a carer, whether a man or woman needs in terms of raising a family to remove some of the guilt that you already have anyway, because you're aware of the juggle, but you don't need that extra layer of artificial stress that's created by being forced to be somewhere at a certain time where it's not even important really because it's just a power trip all of those things are nuanced fights that are still very much on the table and so we decided that it's a lot of work but we have to continue but still in the spirit of positive change I don't want to pick fights with men I don't want to have arguments or whatever I like to educate them to help them understand our point of view Um, I want them to feel capable to be inspired by other women, not to feel that somehow, you know, only the great guys are rainmakers in law firms and they're worth kind of modeling yourselves on to really create, if you like, new images and ideas of leadership around the legal profession so that people feel anyone with their own style has a place and they can succeed. And I think we're not there yet. And I, like to think they won't take a hundred years but we do need to still tell stories in a different way and i think that's where we are very well positioned and we know what we're doing and we're building on something that creates a context um and hopefully more longevity for well a better more balanced legal profession really
3: thank you uh that's a really a good uh interesting perspective and yeah just essentially keeping pushing it forward and these changes and um yeah sort of hearing the the nuanced changes I suppose also you probably because they're kind of more those kind of like nuanced differences you hear less about. Um and yeah they're kind of maybe but you may not hear about them but I feel like I, they can have such a big impact on yeah um how just like the experience—it's okay? very it's easy, I think, to overlook things like that, especially the difference. you are talking about partners and then equity partners, and
2: the difference in pay actually for the the, the gender pay gap in equity partners. You know, it's very easy when you're having a conversation with someone about the the gender pay gap for them to be like, "Well, here's an example of a man and a woman that's paid the same in the same job," and it's like actually looking into the nuances—it's not as black and white as mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. I think it's so important.
4: We're not in a world that wants to hear nuanced anyway. Yeah, I think it is fair to say that we're very led by very vocal, quite repetitive at times, really, stereotypes that think they advance a new world, but actually they're not really advancing a new world. They're just embedding stereotypes without realizing they're doing it. So for me, I think that's why history is really powerful because it's another tool that we have, factual. You know, it tells what was, but you don't have to embellish it. I don't have to say, so so was the first woman, KC because it's a fact. Mm -hmm. How old she was, how many children she had, how long it took her that she finished first in her year. I don't need to make anything up because it's all the reality that she created, but we need to bring it forward to create that kind of positive conversation around the one woman before this generation and they deserve to inherit a better world and to shape the world they want to profess in you know so I think it's really important although it's maybe like less sexy in a way to kind of shout you know two different opinions for me it's really important to be balanced and to really effect change at the end of the day that's what I'm interested in I'm not interested in just being visible for my own sake um, I always say my career you know I've done what I wanted to do in a way obviously I'm still running this and that but I don't I'm not desperate to kind of be a partner somewhere or whatever I'm not trying to climb a career ladder and I'm just trying to be objective and really create opportunities to drive change to make it better for the next generation I think it's I owe it to you
3: amazing yeah um no particularly and I think just as a sort of really quick side note particularly we always hear like on social on social media obviously something we're quite active on there are a lot of those kind of slogans that I suppose like the substance behind them is probably incredibly lacking um Mm. and and the, the change they make but yeah it's definitely it's a very true perspective um and now sort of talking about your career on a slightly different uh, note and um, you obviously regularly contribute to legal articles and publications uh, and I suppose with your background in journalism that makes a lot of sense can you sort of tell us how that fits in um, with kind of working as a lawyer in that legal profession
4: um, definitely I think it's linked to journalism it's and journalism came about because I love people right so I'm interested in hearing what goes on, and I'm not afraid to express an opinion as long as it's kind of backed up and rather than just, as you say, you know, adding more slogans to the debate. So for me, it's an opportunity to expand on some ideas and some of the things that I do and another way of communicating my desire for change and ideas around how it can be achieved. And I think for me, obviously, because I learned to write very early on, you know, in my kind of journalism career, um, I just use it it's just another thing that I was able to add to my kind of toolbox mm-hmm. and um, I, I feel lucky that I have it because I'm able to to express all these opinions but as I said uh, for me it's really important to be moderate and thoughtful and considerate and also, consider of all the sides of a conversation. You know, it's very easy to say I'm the only one. I, you know, this change has to be done in this way because it does create change, does create a lot of anxiety. And you can't just be blunt. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to understand, you know, the kind of... I don't want to be ever a leader that ends up with a zero-sum result where if the woman win, all the men lose. That, to me, is not a good progress, right? right. So how do you achieve progress that actually takes everybody with them much harder Um, so writing for me is an opportunity to navigate all these issues um, explore them in, in a bit more depth and I'm grateful to anybody who decides to let me share my writing and my thoughts and obviously these social media platforms are quite helpful because you can you know unmoderated you know say what you have to say so I use it in very many ways, but um, obviously I'm grateful that people are prepared to publish what I have to say because it's not forgiven, right?
3: No, that's amazing. Yeah, thank you very much. First of all, we I mean, we started our podcast two years ago and it was kind of an uphill journey to do it. So I think it's, Uh, So, so impressive that you've got such a kind of strong running one. Um, But could you tell us what Kids Law Podcast is and why you decided to found it?
5: So Kids Law Podcast is a podcast about how law affects children as they grow up. And I um, founded it because I found out at the age of 10 that 10 is the age of criminal responsibility, which means that you can be prosecuted or go to a youth court. And I was really surprised because because I was really I, I was small and I still am small. I didn't understand was even if, like the law even if my parents are lawyers and my dad's a barrister obviously. So I really needed to find out more about it so I could understand why I could be prosecuted or go to youth courts.
3: It's such a good point. It's so we I actually I've actually only just started studying lawyers. Honestly, we spent like um a week on talking about. The fact that it's age 10 is when you can, like, criminal yeah. liability. It's it's really interesting, and it does feel very young. It does feel very, very <laughs> young.
2: No, it's super cool. And we listened to an episode earlier, um, your most recent one. Very, very impressive stuff. And then the other question we had for you is, who has been your favourite guest that you've had on your podcast
3: so far, and why? Oh, okay. One. No pressure.
5: <laughs> um, Well, it was... Quite cool to have my first podcast with Lady Hale, my first episode. It was a really big jump to go from being a normal school child to meeting like Lady Hale, like even if it was on Zoom, and then meeting her in person later on. So that was one of my favorites just because, well, it was my first one and I learned a lot from only one episode at the start. I also, I always talk about the Kirsty Brimlow one, about Halloween just because I think it's really gruesome, but it's really fun in the same time. So I feel like every child should listen to it, even if they're a bit underage, just because it's quite fun to listen to.
3: Amazing. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's really... I feel like there's um, there's so much that can be covered in the it's kind of looking at through law through a child's perspective. It's, there's kind of so much content you could have. It's really interesting. And it's interesting.
2: also so impressive that you do it because law is a really hard thing to understand and it's really hard to speak about in normal non-legal words so I think you do such a good job of conveying it in a way that everyone can understand even if they are you know young
3: so it's so cool such a cool resource thank you so much for um allowing us to ask you questions no problem thank you for inviting me
1: And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.